My name is Craig Pickett. I'm an executive recruiter. More than a decade ago, I started my practice for one purpose, to use my experience as a former military aviator, business jet sales executive, and P&L leader to help aviation and aerospace companies and their executives be fast, adaptable, and strategic. I do these podcasts to inspire and inform, but more importantly, they are a focused platform to help business leaders grow. Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. Hey, welcome back um, to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. Today, I am uh, I'm thrilled to have uh, Nick Pastushin on with me. Nick is a CEO. He's a well-known well-known voice in aircraft leasing and finance. He's been around the industry for a long time. Currently, the uh, the CEO of Warbird Capital, where he's uh, doing a lot of advisory work with uh, private equity and some restructuring firms. Um, he also uh, uh, works in the private private equity environment and does some investment um, in some smaller companies in the aviation aerospace arena. Uh, he's the former chief investment officer at uh, CIT, where he helped to uh, to steer more than twenty billion dollars in aviation assets and he got his start in the industry uh, back in the early 90s uh with uh with GE Capital. So Nick, thanks for uh thanks for coming on with me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So well, uh, obviously uh COVID has thrown a big uh big wrench into uh the commercial aircraft arena. Where do we uh where do we go from here? What uh yeah, the, the whole industry needs the airlines to start flying again. Uh, finance and leasing are going to play a big part in that. You know, where, you know, what are the challenges with the leasing companies, and where are the opportunities down the road? Where do we start? Well, I guess we we probably have to start from the very big picture because leasing is sort of a whole ecosystem unto itself um, that supports the financing of the OEM builds and all that, which is an ecosystem unto itself, and each of these little food chains are all based on the airlines themselves. If you want to use that ecosystem analogy, the best way to think about it is, you know, in a traditional ecosystem of, you know, plants and animals, the sun is the energy source. The plants turn that uh, solar energy into chemical energy, and then animals of all kinds eat the plants and eat other animals and, uh, you know, all these uh, interconnected food webs. Right. The aviation example for that is that the the sun or our energy source here is travel demand. People want to go places. That's the whole reason the industry exists. Airlines are the ones who turn that demand into realized travel and therefore dollars. Those dollars flow out of the airlines to employees, to um, aircraft manufacturers for purchases, to leasing companies or the banks who finance some of that equipment, uh, to the MRO community, all the various parts of aviation that all need to be present for the ecosystem to work are all dependent on that revenue source of turning travel demand into dollars. So what we've had here with COVID is like the asteroid that hit the earth that wiped out the dinosaurs. So it blocked out the sun, which is our travel demand. So without that travel demand and with the plants, which is our airlines dying from lack of energy or, Mm -hmm. you know, dollars from customers, all the various parts of the ecosystem are at risk of collapsing also. So when you think about it, you know, in that sort of big picture way, any particular part of it, whether it be leasing or OEM or MRO, are all in it together. Mm -hmm. So 
it's all about when do people start to travel again? When are they comfortable enough to travel and not be worried about social distancing? And how do you queue up in a security line and a check-in line and all these other things that we know is part of the airport experience? Right now, what we have is just fundamentally incompatible with that. So we have a risk of the entire ecosystem collapsing. I, I try not to be too dramatic about it, but you know, this could be a mass extinction event like it was to the dinosaurs. So where do we go from here? Well, we need the recovery to happen. And you know, if a whole bunch of bankruptcies, the mass extinction thing happens, well, there'll be new money and there'll be new startups and there'll be new companies and aviation will be here and there will be travel. It just may look very different in a couple of years as you know, new companies are starting from the ashes, just because it's, it's really hard to bridge from where we are now to the point of recovery if we're not going to have a vaccine or something else that restores consumer confidence quickly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I, yeah. Look, I was looking at, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of these, you know, maybe I'm just an overly optimistic person, but I was looking at Memorial day and all the crowds at the beaches and the rivers. And my sense is that people do want to get back on airplanes. They're probably not as scared. But the question is, is, you know, governments, when do states and, you know, when do states and countries reopen their borders and allow people to actually travel? And I think that's the wild card, you know, right now. Yeah. So certainly international travel is more impacted and that will take longer to come back. Therefore, the wide bodies um, will, will come back later. So, you know, in a perfect scenario, if all travel was opened, even on a domestic basis in the U.S. or other large countries that have domestic uh, uh, travel, how many people would actually show up? Is it half of what it used to be? Is it three quarters? And are airlines even viable at those kind of traffic levels? So break-even load factors generally are around 75%. Yep. The airlines have not gone through restructurings to shrink all their fixed costs that was the network of the pre-COVID size. So while you can say, yeah, there's all these green shoots that there's some capacities coming back and, you know, oh, if we have this huge recovery being down 95% and coming up to being only down 50, is that sustainable? Well, no. The post 9-11 downturn had traffic for the year down like 12% domestically, and it took a couple of years to come back from there. You know, this right. is far, far worse. So, you know, that basically triggered bankruptcies of almost all the U.S. carriers, ex um, American. So um, we can see the green shoots, but we're still a long ways away from a sustainable system in terms so of key and So Doug Parker came out a couple of days ago and said, you know, bankruptcy is not an option. United is, you know, is, is trudging along and pushing forward. You know, same thing. I think everybody agrees that they're probably the two carriers that may be in the most precarious positions. Um, you know, you've got Southwest out there, which had the best balance sheet of them all. Is there, is there some winners and losers in this thing? Or what do you, you know, can, can the airlines get through without, you know, a bankruptcy? I mean, they're all living on government money now and everybody's saying, you know, September 30th is kind of the, is kind of the day when we'll know. Yeah. The government dollars were a desperately needed lifeline. and. The way it was at least proposed, or maybe this is the lobbying approach was, look, if we were to fail immediately, all these people are going to be on unemployment anyway. 
So if you can give us the money that would be similar to the unemployment amounts from now till the fall, it's really not as much of a bailout of the shareholders or the creditors, it's the workers. And it's much easier politically for people to get around helping workers than bearing out, bailing out shareholders or executives. It's just, yeah, it's just politics. So um, that's, what the system, that's what it was designed for. And if there was a somewhat V-shaped recovery, which is that by the fall traffic is coming back to some sort of a normal uh, level or you know, maybe lower than it had been, but still pretty good, mm-hmm. uh, it would have worked just fine. It would have still caused losses for the airlines because the bailouts, if those are really only covering their personnel costs, they're still got cash burn on the rest of their operation, whether they're not operating or operating below even just the cost of the fuel of the planes flying when you're flying nearly empty. Yep. So there'd still be losses. So the question is, will there be demand at 80 or 90 percent of the pre-COVID levels by the fall? Yeah, I think now the answer to that is almost certainly no. Uh, it might have been sort of hopeful at the beginning that, yeah, this virus signal uh, be contained or we'll get rid of it pretty quickly. That hasn't happened. So uh, I think there's going to be big job cuts as soon as that expires. And then you'll have the scramble of companies trying to figure out how to survive, how much they have to downsize. Every CEO will downplay the possibility of bankruptcy uh, and keep fighting and trying to save the company. It's their job. Mm-hmm. So I'm not surprised at all to hear those comments. And if you think about what happened after 9-11, which really kind of ran into SARS and then Gulf War II in terms of traffic disrupting events. Yep. Yes, he had a year's worth of a string of events. But the main portion of the bankruptcies did not occur until a couple of years later. So it takes a long time, even when a company is losing money until they really run out of all the options. They pull every lever they can to try to raise additional money, uh, get additional debt, restructure things out of court. They'll do anything possible to avoid going into a bankruptcy because that's sort of the you know worst case scenario from a company. So I'm not at all surprised about those comments. Um, and the management teams are gonna do everything they can to keep the companies afloat. Now, I know, or I guess I, no one can know anything, but I am very confident that this airline industry domestically and around the world will still be here in a couple of years. Will some of the names change? Will some of the debt become equity? And will some of them have gone through restructuring? Unfortunately, yes. Will there be a lot less employment? Unfortunately, yes. But will that demand still be there, that fundamental need of travel? And will somebody be there to service it? Absolutely. So the long-term prospects for the industry, you know, our old growth rates might be a thing of the past, but it will be there. It will be a major portion of the economy again, but we've got a lot of pain to go through to get from A to B. So how do we get through? I mean, you're, you're, you're advising, you know, you're, you're working with companies now and advising them on, you know, restructuring, you know, what do we as an industry or individual companies, what do we need to focus on to, to restructure through this? I mean, obviously cash is king. What, uh, what equipment gets us to the other side? You know, where do, what's the starting point, do you think? Well, that's, that's where it gets so challenging. Because if we knew 
that you know the tr demand level and uh, activity with airlines would be at 80% of pre-COVID in the spring of 2021 or something like this, any kind of fixed number, you can divide, des design a plan that lets you, lets you get that. You, you, how long of a bridge do you need to build is the question. So therefore, how much capital do you need to raise? How much do you have to downsize to be able to survive to get there? Right now, we don't know yet. So these initial restructurings that are starting to happen, um, we don't we don't know what's going to happen with them. Some of them may turn into liquidations. So at this point, there's still so much uncertainty. It's hard to make a plan and a capital structure that can survive it. What I've been recommending in a lot of cases, especially to creditors, is the worst thing you can do in the next year as a creditor is to put a company into a liquidation. Um, let's say you know whether it be an airline or you know a, a pooled investment vehicle that owns a bunch of airplanes or something like that selling the assets now when there's literally no demand out there we would with 60 percent plus of the world fleet parked trying to sell airplanes right now would be the worst thing you can possibly do you're better off just putting it into hibernation so you know I know it's a painful thing. You're going to be, have a lot of losses, but your recovery will be a lot better. Just putting things into deep storage, not liquidating it, and, and waiting. You might be waiting two or three years, but hibernation is going to be better than liquidation. And the same thing applies to anybody on the manufacturing side. You know, airlines don't want airplanes right now. They don't need airplanes. So having the production lines running may be good for the OEM primes because you know, they have nothing else. That's what they do. But it's not, it's going to be hard for them to get delivered because the customers don't want them. It's going to be hard to finance them. Most of their com customers are on the verge of bankruptcy if they're alive. So you're pushing a rope. So again, there, I would recommend a strategy of hibernation. You maintain the capability, the industrial manufacturing and the know-how, the certifications, but go into a deep hibernation. That's a really hard medicine for people to understand when they say, oh, well, my, my job is to build airplanes or to build parts, and I've got this order book. Yeah, you've got an order book, but it may not be worth the paper it's written on if all your customers are going through bankruptcies. Yeah, well, the you know, the Boeing, you know, you look at Boeing and Airbus, you know, their order books were 5,000 airplanes deep on the narrow bodies. And, you know, you know, 18 months ago, you could, you could take that to the stock market and sell it. You know, today you realize it's, uh, you know, it's vapor. You know, it's it's really not five thousand airplanes. It's you know twenty a month or whatever Boeing's willing to build and what they think they can you know what they think they can sell, which is you know, very little. But what about you know the you know you hear about AirCap now debt for equity in Norwegian? Yeah. Um, is this going to be a more common uh, phenomena where the leasing companies now have to you know basically become airlines? Well, they're not they're not becoming airlines, but you know, they are gonna have to swap some of the money that is owed to them for something else. It can you can take a total write-off if they liquidate, or you you can take some equity um, uh, in exchange for that and keep your customer alive. And hopefully then you have someone to be able to provide services to in the form of airplanes in the future. So keeping a customer alive is certainly better than not having them there. So much like the conventional wisdom on the OEM side, which is that the order book is this great fortress uh, and you can always shift things around because if one customer doesn't want another one, um, 
uh, does. The same thing applies to leasing companies. The conventional wisdom and traditional way of dealing with airline problems from the inception of leasing was that this is a global market and you have mobile equipment such that if there's a problem in one region or one airline and they fail and they give you the equipment back, you always have somewhere else to put it. COVID and the mass mass extinction event of the you know uh, comet hitting the earth uh, that I talked about in the beginning changed all that. There's now correlation. Every airline is dealing with excess airplanes. So if you take airplanes back from someone who defaults or liquidates, you really don't have any customers to take them. That's never happened before in the history of leasing. Even in the darkest days post 9/11. Um, or in the financial crisis period, you know, if you got some airplanes back, there might be some downtime, um, but you weren't thinking about putting a very young, capable, great airplane on the ground for two years before you'd be able to uh, have a customer. That's com a complete game changer. So yep. when you think about that of the lessor P&L and cash position, GCAS reported the other day that 85% of their Customers have asked for deferrals. Uh, some have been granted, some of them not. Some have been full repossessions. We've heard similar numbers from some of the other major lessors. So with that kind of level of deferral action going on, you know, three months worth of, you know, getting no rents, you know, th those three months are going to come up and those airlines are still going to not be healthy because it wasn't a V-shaped recovery. So those deferrals are going to extend. The question is how many of those turn into defaults? How many of them turn into full-blown restructurings? How many of those end up like the Norwegian model where you have to accept as the lessor or the creditor a deal that you would never even consider because you don't have a credible alternative. If you were to take the airplanes back, you don't have anything to do with them. If you at least leave them there and take the debt for equity swap, you have the airline paying the insurance in the storage and doing the maintenance program while the airplanes are stored. If they if they give them back to you, you have to pay for that. So it's the best of, you know, frying pan or fire kind of things. Like, well, they're both terrible, but, you know, you take the frying pan. It, it almost takes a lot of these assets to make some negative equity. It's like, hey, I'll pay you to take this. You know, you, you, know, you think about, you know, Delta Park and their 777s or 7576 is their MD-80 series aircraft. You know, everything that's old is now in the boneyard will probably never come back. Uh, yes, certainly the types that are being eliminated entirely from a fleet, um, you know, very few of those will come back. I mean, if you've got parts or engines or whole things, you know, the Delta MD-80 fleet, I mean, that was one of the last ones operating. Those, yep. it's not even worth scrap metal now. There's, it's literally zero. It's literally, so, yeah. Yeah, so when you think about it that way, to an investor, if you own an airplane and you don't have a less lessee anymore, you could argue that it's worthless because you have to pay to insure it, to store it, to do maintenance. And to get it back on lease, you might have to put a new interior in it or whatever. When you do it in that present value, those cash flows, you know, on an older airplane, it, you know, there, it's just, there's nothing to, nothing to do. On a younger airplane, yeah, there's still positive value there, but it's really based on the option value of that thing getting back into the, into the fleet in the future. You know, I guess it was about a month ago, we saw a weird situation where oil, which is a valuable commodity, was actually trading at a negative value mm -hmm. because 
the storage location at the physical delivery site for the futures was, was full. So it is weird that you could have a valuable asset that has a lot of capability that just has no demand right now. Um, does it have a negative value? No. I mean, it has a long-term value still because there's the option of getting it back in service. It is a, a capable asset. But all the conventional wisdom about values and retention of values and there's always buyers, you know, that's that's also changed. You know, it's it's really hard to overstate the impact of COVID on all parts of this market. So you could have a very capable airplane, a brand new one, or let's say, you know, a year old or something like that, but a new technology airplane, whether it be a 7.8 or an A350 on the wide body side, uh, or an A321neo, which is sort of the cream of the crop in narrow bodies, uh, a MAX, assuming all the certification issues were taken care of and it's back in the air, doesn't really matter. But the value of those things pre-COVID, and then if you just plug into that same model, two or three years of downtime and paying those expenses, and then a, a low lease for the initial lease, and then everything after that, you know, five, seven years out into the future is back to the same assumptions it would have been pre-COVID. Yep. The difference in that math on a net present value basis is over 30%. So that's, if I was a distressed investor looking to buy an airplane, you know, whether it be a whitetail or something coming out of default or something like that, mm -hmm. I look at that math and say, okay, this is the cash flows I can get over the next 20 years for this asset. Mm-hmm it looks nothing like the pre-COVID numbers. And that's even using the same discount rate. Now, you would imagine that a distressed investor coming in at this point in time is gonna be somebody that has, needs a much higher return because they're taking much higher risk than you know previously. So when you put in a higher discount rate, the, the math gets even worse. So from that basis, the loss given default to lessors and the value which people might be able to sell aircraft that are you know naked not with the lease right now are, are very very different than they used to be so current market value today is distressed value because any sale is by definition distressed yeah we, well we saw it you know my background was more business aviation and we saw it you know during the financial crisis in 2008 to 10 or really 2009 through 11 you know, talking to a broker, you say, what's the value of this G550? And he goes, I, I don't, it's the value of it is what the next guy is willing to pay for it. Yeah. The first guy through the door, anybody who's willing to buy it, they're, they're going to throw out a number. So when there really is no market, there's no bid ask spread, even to quote, um, it, it's really hard. And I, I have a lot of sympathy for the ISTAT appraisers that are trying to be data-based uh, in their updates to customers about what values of airplanes are. There are a few transactions happening now, you know, some of which were ones that were already in the queue before, so they may not be reflective of current situation. I'm not aware of much activity out there that meets the ISTAT definition of a single unit sale without a lease uh, of an equally motivated buyer and seller that you could use as a good data point. I just don't think those exist yet. Um, so, They've tried to use proxies of values from the post 9-11 period to try to guesstimate. You know, they know there's been a shift. They try to report a shift. They don't know how much yet. Yep. And it might be a year or two before we see enough transactions to really get an idea. And most of these initial uh, transactions are going to be coming out of a bankruptcy or some, something else like that, which would not 
qualify as being a you know equally motivated buyer and seller by any means. Yep. So let me. So let's take it a different road. You know, Boeing is now restarting the Max production line, and my guess is whatever rolls off is now going to be a whitetail. So does it go into storage, and does somebody, you know, just does some investor or investment group or somebody come along at some point when that airplane gets recertified and able to fly? Do they just? throw a number at Boeing and say, we'll take it off your hands and eventually you know, sit on it and wait for the market to turn or, you know, Airbus, the same thing on their, their, you know, their narrow bodies, the A220s are now, you know, restarting as well. The OEMs have got to be, you know, you know, biting their fingernails going, what the, what the heck do we do here? Yeah. So that's, that's complicated because, you know, realistically, the only time you see a true white tail is if at the time they start building it, they don't have a customer for it. Mm-hmm. So anybody who's visited one of the production lines sees that even while the airplane is in its green state uh, without uh, paint, the, the rudder is painted because it's very important to have the weight and balance of that super precise. So when it's assembled, the tail or the, the rudder of the tail mm-hmm. is already in the customer livery. So if it's white, that means that there isn't a customer. And that's actually very rare. Given all the airplanes in the backlog today, everything they've been building has a customer order associated with it. And everything when they start production will probably have one of those original customer orders associated with it. So they're not technically whitetails, mm-hmm. but the question will be, is that customer actually going to take it? Have they already deferred it? Have they already canceled it? Are they going to show up at the delivery center or not? Um, so they may have a whole bunch of airplanes that have the tail painted, but also more importantly, the whole interior and the avionics are customized to that customer's spec. If they don't show up and take delivery, you now have an airplane that's built to one specific spec. If you're ultimately gonna use it to a different airline, maybe one of the different business model and different seat configuration, you gotta rip all that interior out and try to put in another one at tremendous expense after the production has been done. That's another five, six million bucks right there. Yeah, so the, the logistical issues of the OEMs to juggle this order book and see who's still willing to take the airplanes and okay well do i have the airplane that's in that spec for them or not you know you might have 400 air maxes sitting there parked but that's not the one that the customer that's willing to take delivery uh has specified as far as you know their exact spec so even though you have 400 of them sitting there those were earmarked and designed and built to the different customer spec so the bottom line is it's it's uh, you know, it's going to be chaos to, to sort all this out for another two years, three years with uh, a couple hundred airplanes on the ground, you know, a couple hundred brand new maxes on the ground on top of what everybody's got parked. Um, you know, he who can figure it all out is king, I guess, is the, uh, is the answer. And it's a very complex, complex yeah, equation. E- even before COVID, the whole bringing the max back into service and getting all those assembled but undelivered airplanes actually out in customers hands was a tremendous logistical challenge you know when you even think about that in the simulator training that's now uh, going to be part of that getting the pilots uh, ready for it let alone you know just the delivery process they were looking at an extended period of time to get all those undelivered airplanes out while the demand was still fully strong pre-covid now it's going to be much much more difficult yeah 
Let's talk about a little bit older airplane now. You've got, you know, uh, you know a lot of 737 new gens, A320, you know, midlife A320s. You know, they're probably going to come out of the desert and they're going to be the ones that the airlines rebuild with. Um, but I suspect that you know, MRO dollars are going to be, you know, at a premium. Um, you know, anything that's any engine that's coming, coming due for a, a major event will probably be swapped out for, for green time. Um, you've got you know, guys like, you know, Charlie Willis out there, you know, Willis Lease, ACS, Air, Air Capital Solutions, you know, ELF, et cetera. Um, you know, are they, are they in a good, are they in a good spot to, you know, move forward? Is, is anybody with a green time engine going to see a lot of upside or is that going to be equally as challenged, do you think? No, green time will be the name of the game. And if you're an airline and you've got a fleet that's grounded uh, and you brought it back and maybe your half of your airplanes are flying, those other half that aren't flying is going to be the first place you're going to go uh, for any part you need or any engine. So even before you go out to an engine lessor or anybody else or the market looking for green time, you're going to cannibalize your own. And then once you get through that level, then it's a, a decision of do you overhaul one of your own engines or just you know, lease one in because you're still so cash constrained. So the MRO outlook in terms of, you know, parts and services is, is one of the worst in the whole, in the whole sector, because to have this level of aircraft not operating, um, the cannibalization opportunities, the part out opportunities of these airplanes, that's just going to provide a wave of used serviceable material. Um, aftermarket uh, parts and, and MRO are, are going to be some of the last things to come back. Now, there are some inefficiencies in the market. So when you have an airline that goes bankrupt, that might have a whole fleet of aircraft and engines, including spares, those engines uh, in that green time may not immediately come to market because it's tied up in all kinds of bankruptcy proceedings. So somebody who needs an engine, um, you know, a smaller airline that doesn't have a huge fleet to cannibalize, you know, going to an engine lessor to get an engine to, for green time may be their best option, even if there's hundreds of other engines theoretically out there, but they're all tied up in some sign of a bankruptcy or insolvency. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I never, I never thought about that. You know, it's, uh, uh, it, and, and those things are never quick either. You know, those processes never go fast. Correct. Um, which definitely brings more dynamics. How do the airlines rebuild? Do they come back as low-cost carriers and just trying to sell seats to get demand regenerated? Or do they come back as, you know, higher price because the demand is limited? Well, if you think of it from a unit economic standpoint, um, if you're going to fill every seat and have high utilization, that low-cost model works. In a low-demand environment, filling all of your seats and having high aircraft utilization, you know, 11 hours a day or something like that, it seems like a long putt. So I would think that higher cost travel is more likely what we're going to see if airlines are trying to, you know, actually break even. You may see situations where, you know what, we're going to lose less money by discounting the fares and trying to fill the plane we're going to lose money anyway but so let's not even try to recover our cost let's just you know get the maximum dollars we can 
Uh, hard to tell how airlines and fleet planners will do that in a very dynamic demand environment. Once we reopen, we don't know how much demand is going to come back, how fast. So balancing the schedules uh, versus the demand and the pricing strategy is going to be a lot of guesswork. I mean, there's no precedent for this. There's no model that's going to be great. You're, you're going to have to do trial and error. So I'm not sure. Um, we will see. After a bank, a lot of bankruptcies, if, a, if there's a lot of voids in the market of you know countries or regions that are underserved, you could see new air, air airlines starting up to fill that void. That may be different business models than what you saw there before. As far as their aircraft selection, the interesting thing is that the capital cost on the fleet that is already delivered becomes a variable cost. I mean, normally you think of that as fixed. Yeah, I paid $40 million for this airplane, blah, blah, blah. Here's what it's worth. If I went to go get one from somebody else, it's going to cost the same thing. Now, after all these defaults, lessors have all these airplanes are desperate to get some customer for a 10-year-old uh, A320CO or 737-800, you might be able to get exceptionally cheap and there's a large number of pilots and spares and things like that. So even if you were to look at all these brand new maxes that Boeing will be offering also probably with very attractive terms, the capital cost differential between those two offsets, um, uh, you know, the fuel burn differential by far. So building a business model on 10 year old airplanes uh, may be far better than brand new. and you know, we'll, we will have to wait and see. But if I had to pick winners among fleet types of what's going to stay operating, I would pick the airplanes that have a lot of capability and they're going to be really, really cheap to lease or buy. And that's going to be midlife airplanes, yeah. low capital cost. Yeah, you probably get a you know, good 737 for, you know, 10, you know new gen, you know, 700, 800 for you know, 10 million bucks or whatever, you know, a little bit more than, you know, maybe, maybe slightly more than what's, you know, the value of the engines. Yeah. And you're off to the races. I mean, you see some, you know, you've got, you know, David Nealman out there, he's looking to, you know, you know, start something, you know, start a new airline with, you know, Moxie or whatever it's called now. And a couple other people out there, you know, raising capital to start their airlines. And the question is, is, are, do they become a better, do they become a better bet, you know, starting from scratch? than some of the legacy carriers trying About to start the, over again. The time when an airline has its lowest unit costs is, you know, when it first starts up. I guess once it gets to full operating efficiency, but, you know, all their costs are, you, you haven't had all the cost inflation that you have of being in business for a long time and have employees for a long time. So, yes, I think startups assuming there's a big void to fill from a lot of bankruptcies, startups will be there and will do well. Um, you know, so Moxie and uh, some of the other ones that were already really close to starting when this hit, you know, are they gonna go back to the drawing board and do a slightly different business plan? You know, maybe, maybe they start with used equipment, not new, but you know, that argument we talked about before, even though, you know, the AT20, um, is a great airplane for the certain size routes and things like that. You know, if you can pick up uh, 737-700s or A319s, A320s for next to nothing, you know, you can do that same same mission uh, actually cheaper. It's not the long-term plan because then you're going to have to eventually transition the fleet 
once those airplanes uh, get older, but if you can pick them up for next to nothing, why not? Yeah, no, that's kind of what, you know, hey, look, it's, it's uh, price solves all problems, as one friend of mine taught me uh, many years ago. And, um, you know, if something is cheap enough, there's a lot of value in it. And, uh, you know, an A319 at, you know, 10, 12 you know, million bucks compared to an A220 at, you know, nearly 30. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a big delta in there. Exactly. So, and even that, you know, $10 million price, I mean, we used to think about that as being the, the scrap value or the part out value with so much used serviceable material out there. Um, you know, who knows what a part out value actually is right now, because yep. it's going to take a much longer time for those parts to be absorbed. You know, most of it's really in engines anyway. So it's really all about green time. But, you know, even that number of what your part out value is might be down dramatically versus what you thought. So you think of all these companies that have been doing the used aircraft to part out um, business, a lot of which are funded by uh, ABS structures, asset backed securitizations. Yep. Those those are in, in really bad shape. So, I was just getting ready to say, anybody who's parted out, you know, bought an airplane for part out or an engine for part out in the last 12, 18 months has probably got a big headache right now. Yes. I, I mean, anybody who owns any kind of aircraft risk has got a problem, but it, the older the airplane, the less chance of recovery just because you have less time to work with and your part out value is going to be down. And that if that's what you were relying on was a couple of years of lease and a part out, well, Instead of getting a couple of years lease, you now have a couple of years of storage, and so you lost all that revenue, and then your part out numbers are a lot lower too. So, um, a lot of people are going to be left holding the bag here. So, uh, bond investors and ABS are going to be uh, uniquely exposed. Amongst the lessors, those that have used commercial secured debt bank funding are going to run into problems with their banks very quickly. Uh, the creditors are going to need to get organized and. Um, uh, see what they can do there, but they're likely going to become the owners of those. Some of the big lessors that have relied a lot of on unsecured debt, um, you know, they can go out and borrow secured debt and changing their unsecured into subordinated debt. Um, that's not a really good option, but at least they, those companies have some financial flexibility. But once they start reporting numbers in the second quarter numbers and then the third quarter numbers, we'll see the full impact of all these deferrals and how much their revenue is hit. Yep. Uh, I think the the market is going to hate those numbers when they when they see them. Yeah, I I, I see the leasing companies their 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 stock prices keep going up, and you know eventually these guys got to report their numbers, and they're not going to be pretty. And yeah, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know what happens to that. You know, yeah, you know, to those numbers in six months or a year. Um, yeah. But so I the, think the, the equity markets, gotta, I think, are a little confused about that they're trading up with the rest of the market on some general hope about things coming uh coming back or a virus uh hope or things like that but on the fundamentals there's no reason why they should be getting better the airline defaults are just piling up so more and more pressure on the leasing companies there uh nordic aviation capital had their investment grade rating uh on the day that they went to their bondholders to ask for restructuring so the rating agencies are are not uh, moving as fast as you would like. But again, they're relying on reported data, much like the appraisers. They're waiting for data. Uh, I guess, you know, you and I as observers, speculators, consultants, et cetera, 
have the ability to jump right to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, those other parties that are waiting to see the results are going to, by definition, going to be behind the curve. Yep, I agree with you. So, you know, look for the long term, you know, just assume, let's let's assume best case, you know, the industry starts to rebuild itself, you know, 2, 3, Q, 2021, and then, you know, numbers come back to, you know, the passenger numbers come back to, a, you know, a reasonable level, 70, 80% load factors or, you know, whatever. Are investors, are their memories going to be long on this? Is this going to, you know, is, is the industry going to be capital constrained? from an investment basis uh, moving forward until yeah, the memory becomes a little bit diluted? Probably not. The debt might be harder to come by because the, the banks that are going to get torched in this are going to have longer memories. There's always other investors out there. If there's a good idea um, and somebody comes out with a credible business plan and there's an opportunity to be addressed, you know, money will find its way to that. There's, there's, there's always people that are going to be eager to try to grab an opportunity. So I believe there will be money there. In a lot of cases, you're either going to be bringing something up from the ashes that, you know, might have liquidated, um, or maybe if yeah, there's something in hibernation, you need to recapitalize it to, you know, get it going again. The money will be there. So when the demand is there and there's a credible business case, uh, I am confident that the capital markets, and capitalism will will support this and people will see the opportunity knowing that aviation in the long term is a great business with a fundamental inherent uh, resiliency of demand that has been tested here like it's never been tested before but the reason why traffic continuously grow had grown at more than 2x gdp for decades uh, is making travel cheaper and expanding middle class around the world mm -hmm. and a fundamental desire to go see new places, to have face-to-face -face meetings, et cetera. You know, that's not going to go away. Right. It's, it, you got to put on the real long-term view to get there, but it's going to be there. You know, I, I feel the same way. I think you and I are both kind of aligned short-term. It's going to be ugly. It's a very, it's a, it's a dark storm that we're going through now. Long term, we'll all be okay, but you know, as an industry, we'll be okay. But it's going to take a little while to get there. When do you start to? When do you think it starts to? You know, crystal ball. You think we're a year out? You think it's twenty twenty two, twenty twenty three? What do you? How long do you think it takes for the financial markets to unsort? You know what they've what they've gotten into. You know, that's that's such a scenario based analysis on do we have a vaccine? Are there mutations? Uh, it's so virus specific scenario of trying to come up with something that's credible because the problem we have here is fear. Yep. If we remove the fear, we don't have a problem anymore. We might have some changed behaviors of people doing much, many more business meetings on, you know, Zoom or Teams or you know, any, any of these other technologies. Um, however, I think it's going to come back to something close to what we saw you know, pr pr previously. Our old 5% growth rate might be out the window because mm -hmm. green pressures plus more video conferencing and other things may make that growth rate not happen. But the fundamental demand, you know, we'll get back to a good level where we can have a sustainable industry. It may not be quite as big as it was previously. 
and then you know a growth rate from there maybe not as high of a growth rate but a growth rate again in a couple of years but these scenarios are all about when is the fear removed and frankly I have no idea, and I don't even think the experts that are working on the vaccines have any idea. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you there. And you're right, it is a very, you know, it is a very people-dependent, you know, the, the big question is, once again, when do governments, you know, when do governments start to open their borders? When do people stop having fear? Yeah. You know, when, you know, when does the, you know, when does the media, you know, when does the hype, you know, start to dissolve and people get back into, you know, get back into their normal lives, so. Yeah. I guess we'll have to wait and say. Our, our full recovery means everybody, the fear is gone entirely as if it never happened. And that's going to be you know a long time away. So if everything opens up, maybe half the people say, you know what, I just want to get back to my life. You know, I'm, you know, under 50 and I don't really think I'm at high risk. You know, I've got to just start doing things. I want to go on vacation. I want to do things. There's going to be some people that are going to be the early adopters, much like when a new technology comes out, right? When when we open up the floodgates, the early adopters will be out there, but maybe that's only 30% of what it used to be. To get back to 100%, we need to get everybody. And that's, you know, to get to sustainable load factors or break-even load factors, we need more than the early adopters. We need almost everybody to be back. We need cruise ships operating, theme parks open, you know, all the destinations that is causing people to travel. Uh, it's not just going to visit grandma or, you know, doing a business meeting. It's all the other things, the international travel. So it's going to be phases and it's going to be hard to right size the industry to each phase because each phase may not last that long. And we might have two steps forward, one step back. Hard, hard to guess, but to say it's going to be dynamic, I guess, is probably the best uh, yeah. prediction. Yeah, I agree. Actually, have to make a prediction. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's the one thing people, you know, it's it's easy to shut things down quickly. It's harder to ramp them back up again. And uh, yeah, once you once you turn off the factory and shut off your suppliers, you know, it's it's easy to do that. But to, to get everybody back um, is a is a month or year long or months long or years long process. So I guess we we'll just have to be patient. Hey, thanks for thanks for coming on today, Nick. I, I, I love the discussion. Appreciate you coming on and, and talking about this. Great. Uh, yes, I enjoyed it too. And um, what look what's next? To having future conversations. What's next for you? So my focus in the near term is on the recapitalization and restructuring of the industry. So when I saw what had happened with COVID and all the all the distress, I really repositioned Warbird Capital. Um, from being more of a, just an investment firm doing loans and private equity uh, to advisory work. So I've teamed up with a, um, a boutique restructuring firm called Conway McKenzie. And that allows Warbird and other uh, groups that I'm uh, connected to, to bring the capabilities of a, of a large scale, well, not large scale, but it's a boutique size, but a fully capable restructuring firm uh, to this aviation business. There weren't a lot of aviation restructuring people because we haven't had a lot of restructuring in aviation. Mm -hmm. The post-financial uh, crisis downturn, if you will, was a little blip in the traffic growth, but on OEM side, we grew through it. So there, there hasn't been much distress. There aren't a lot of people that have the real detailed aviation knowledge 
that are doing restructuring work. So frankly, that's the opportunity that I saw um, is the ability to try to help be part of the solution, which is restructuring and recapitalization. That's awesome. So you come back on in a couple months and industry update? Yep, and it, it may take a couple quarters before we're making a lot of progress. So I may not have much of an update in a couple months, but I'll be happy to happy to talk again. I'll tell you, we'll bring you back in the fourth quarter. How's that? Sounds good. All right, Nick. Hey, thanks for coming on today. Greatly appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Aerospace Executive Podcast. You can reach out to me directly, Craig at NorthStarESG.com, or check us out at www.NorthStarESG.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube. Just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pippen.